Since we recorded this episode, Jess has sadly passed away. It was very sudden and very sad because she was not only so young but so full of life. We dedicate this episode to Jess's memory and her beautiful dynamic character and her ferocity, which will live on in our hearts. And remember, when listening and enjoying the music in this podcast series, Jess wrote it. Hi, I'm Tim Ferguson. Welcome to Made Possible, five stories of Australians inspiring change for people with disabilities and our communities. There are fans, then there are super fans. Jess Maloney is definitely a super fan. Jess loves music and it was online that she found friends who shared her passion. These were friends who met offline at gigs, seeing The Living End, Bruce Springsteen and, uh uh-oh, the Doug Anthony All-Stars. Jess stands a petite four foot eleven, but at gigs she's always been able to find a way to the front barrier and eventually to side of stage as her circle of friends has grown to include the musicians making the music that she loves. She's always been an observer, but recently she stepped out of the crowd and picked up a guitar. In fact, Jess, along with her brother Sean, is largely responsible for the theme music for this podcast. Okay, there have been some big changes in Jess's life. She used to be a roller derby jammer, get out of the way, skating rings around the other team to score points, and sometimes, let's be frank, pushing them over. So when I started losing my eyesight, I lost roller derby. And then um, Chris from Living End said to me when I was complaining to him about no more skating that um, you don't need eyesight to play guitar. That's Chris Cheney, lead singer of The Living End. Him? Yeah, him. He told Jess to pick up the guitar when her vision started deteriorating. So I've got five guitars. I've got two acoustic and then um, three electric was my beginner's electric, my mid-range Gretsch, and then I've been given my brother's who's no longer with us, and I'll say it's he's a metalhead, so it's interestingly shaped and purple with skulls on it. My rule is get up and play one of them for an hour and then play another for an hour. So I've tried to do at least two hours of practice a day. People say you're going to join a band and everything and it's never occurred to me. I'm just really happy sitting in my room playing guitar because I know it's the one thing that eye disease can never ruin for me is music. So it makes me happy. (laughs) And it's cool to sit and play guitar with a bird on your shoulder who's singing along. (laughs) So yeah. The bird on her shoulder is Doody, a 12-year-old cockatiel and Jess's biggest fan who we say is technically a disabled cockatiel because he's blind in one eye and he only has one working throat gland. But he absolutely loves music and if he's sad, you put music on. He's especially fond of Willie Nelson and he will just sing his heart out. And so when I play guitar, he sits on the headstock and he whistles along. Vision loss has affected Jess's life in some ways. Things that have changed with vision loss, I always tell myself it can't ruin music, but it's very sad with loss of independence. I've missed gigs I wanted to go to purely because I can't find anyone to go with me because I can't stand alone at like the city at 1am trying to find a taxi. And people are weird if you're staring, standing at a gig in sunglasses and a cane, drunk people have to come up to you. I got a badge that said I am low vision purely because I was sick of people telling me I'm wearing sunglasses. 
I was like, I don't need a cane, I don't need a cane, this will do. Um, and then I live alone on a busy street and there is no crosswalk. And I had three incidents of cars doing their wheels and then honking at me and then swearing at me. So I was like, okay, I think I maybe need a cane to cross the road. Despite what you might think, there are some advantages in carrying a big stick. With a cane, like you don't have to use it 24-7. If you can just walk down the street, you know where you are, cool. But yeah, if you're going me crowded areas and people are mean, <laughs> carry a cane and they're less, less judgmental. Like we went to actually Paul Kelly and it was the first time my dad was out with me with a cane and he said that was great because it was a picnic venue and he's like, people were moving their picnic blankets out of your way and everything, it was great. Dad said your cane is like Moses because you part the Red Sea that everyone gets out of your way mostly. Vision impairment is only part of the story. When Jess was a teenager, she found out that she had epilepsy, but it was a long road to diagnosis. I have complex partial where I, I will get a weird feeling in my stomach. I know I'm about to seizure. I will try to tell the nearest person, but I probably will not make sense. I'll wave my arms around and I will fall asleep. I'm not unconscious, I fall asleep. And for me, the routine is normally, I wake up with one in the middle of the night and I get them all day. So I just know stay at home with mum or something. And then um, the one that actually got me diagnosed, so I'd had those for three years. And because it was going through puberty and stuff, parents thought it's just her body's going through Hamlin. So nothing against your mum and dad, because I didn't know there was more than type of seizures either. And then when I was three years later, when I was 14, I woke up paralysed and just started screaming and screaming and screaming and the parents rushed me to the ER. And the, um, the doctors said there's no physical reason why she can't move, but we can tell that she actually believes she can't move because they were stabbing me with things and I wasn't reacting. And there's a type of seizure called Todd's paralysis where you have a seizure in your sleep and your brain and body lose connection temporarily. And so that's how I was finally diagnosed. What about you and me, the Tim and Jessica story? We met at a Doug Anthony All-Stars show and then we turned out to be staying in the same hotel and we were both checking out at the same time and we did a, hey, it's you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and ever since then we sort of stayed in touch. Yep. I wanted to be a writer when I was a kid, so Tim gives me reviews of my poetry and things. Yeah. That's true, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the thing I liked about you, Jess, was that you were funny. You were just funny and a very sort of sarcastic and... I mistook your sarcasm for total confidence. And I thought, total confidence is something I like. I can relax around those kind of people. It's uh, something that made me say, okay, yeah, we'll get in touch on social media and we'll talk about this stuff. Obviously, too, you've got your vision stuff. And I thought it's very interesting that you've got all these plans and you're doing all these things um, you'd been playing guitar, you showed me a video of you on roller skates, and I just liked the fact that you hadn't slowed down at all and you were doing things that I can't do. So that's why I got in touch with you, and that's why we still talk. So there have been some pretty big changes in your life over the last couple of years. I learnt the very hard way that if you start seeing tonnes of dots and flashing lights, it means your retinas are detaching which I worked in a library, never needed glasses, started seeing tons and tons of dots floating around. And I don't blame my parents for this, but when I complained to them, they said, oh, you're fine, it's normal. So I just kept ignoring and ignoring it. And then I started seeing weird flashing lights and I just kept zooming my computer screen in more and more and more. And then one day at work, I was like, oh, I can't read spine labels, I'll go get glasses. And the poor optometrist just said, please go to hospital. And I was like, well, I'm fine. And then the ophthalmologist was like, how the hell have you left it this long? And I'm like, I just just thought I needed glasses. Like, it never occurred to me that something bad was happening because it was always perfect. And did that bad thing have a name? 
It's called uveitis, and it's an autoimmune disease where your immune system is a jerk and it attacks your eyes. And it's the name for like 50 different diseases. And so where's your eyesight as it stands now? My peripheral vision is perfect, but it's hurt my central. And it gets some, there's no cure, but there's tons of treatment to slow it down. So I have the constant fun of steroids injected into my eyes. And it goes away, and then it always comes back. And every time it comes back, it just destroys more. So, Jess, you do the swing dancing. How? How? Well, my personal trainer at Visibility was a swing dancer. So he kept saying, come do it. And to get the guts, I first, when the lovely swingette said, yeah, you can come, I did a private lesson to so not all visual clues when it's in the actual lesson. But a lot of it is all touch. So the males or the other leads, girls are the follows. So it's all by feel. There's some things that I can't do when... Um, had to laugh when I was at a social dance a few weeks ago. It was a male I hadn't danced with before. And I had to say to him, mate, I can't see. I don't know what you're doing. Because he just kept doing visual clues. And I was wearing my sunglasses. And he said, oh, my God, you're blind. I just thought you were on acid. <laughs> and I've never laughed so hard. It's the best reaction I've ever had to the sunglasses. <laughs> and in Perth, every weekend, there is social dancing. So it relies a lot on the partner being aware of what you're doing. And um, sound as well was... My first few social dances were to a DJ. I tried to dance to a band for the first time and I couldn't figure out I could not do it at all. And it was I was counting the guitar riffs, not what my feet were supposed to be doing, so I had to concentrate on the feet, not guitars. Um, and because you now wear dark glasses inside, uh, what's the reaction from people when they see you when you're sunny. Yeah, they look how cool she is. Or um, One guy grabbed them off my face and said, you're not a rock star. And just, oh, how's the sun? And it's like, to be fair, they're always drunk. A sober person has never come up to me and given me shit for wearing sunglasses. What's your response, though, when they, when they do? I've got the ultimate guilt trip of, well, I'm blind. Or I just say, future's so bright, I've got to wear shades if I don't need to give them a second thought. But if I'm holding a cane, that does not happen. But I said, my record in one night is seven people telling me I'm wearing sunglasses. For someone who's sort of being newly diagnosed as having uh, problems with their eyes, do you have any advice to someone who's just been given the news, as you did, that there's something seriously wrong? Accept help. Don't be too proud or guilty. Like, I I didn't know. I thought, but blind is you can't see anything. And then when I actually went for the first time to visibility, I was wearing Batman shoes. And a guy holding a white cane said to me, I love your Batman shoes. So straight away, I was like, oh, okay, so there are people who have, yeah, some eyesight. So, yeah, and things have gotten easier from accepting help. Do you think it's possible, though, that you'd get in a band? Yeah, I don't know. I, um, I say I can play guitar until someone's watching. <laughs> but um, I'll say my roller derby name was Little Misfits as a pun on epilepsy, so I'm sure I'd have to have, like, seizure salad or some joke like that. And so, Jess, how are you feeling at the moment about your future? My current worry is I, I saved so much money while I still had a job because I knew one day this is going to ruin. I can do any job, but employees can't understand that. So I'm on disability pension, which pays my rent and my bills, but I can't save money. I don't ever want to be living pension to pension. I just want to get a part-time job where I can save at least $100 a fortnight for the future. And so what kind of work would be your ideal kind of job? I reckon I can still work in a library, but library management won't believe that because I can still use a computer. But um, music related, I don't know, anything, but yeah. And what have been the excuses that, you know, people like libraries have given you um, as to why you shouldn't work in their workplace? I got that job through a disability agency when I was 17, and that's because I seizured all the time. Never felt like a disabled person until suddenly new management 
And so they were calling me into Oc Health and Safety meetings, and then they were calling me into HR meetings. They banned me from taking the stairs. Um, and I used to work front desk. I did everything. And then we opened a new library, and um, they shoved me out the back doing nothing but covering books in plastic contact for six hours, and I was getting massive migraines from just staring at contact. So my lovely ophthalmologist wrote a letter saying she can't do that for more than three hours. And then I said, why can't I do front desk? Like, we've got all the software, I can use the computer, I can, and they're like, oh, we don't want you, it's like a small room, you might bump into people. And then they put me on the children's floor. So they don't want me bumping into co-workers in the staff room, but I'm now where toddlers are everywhere. everywhere. Who are bumping into everything. Yeah, and then it, it hit both eyes. It wasn't a problem as hard with one eye. And then I was on, um, you, you've experienced all the lovely medication and the side effects. I'd had no seizures for 10 months. I got put on methoblast and, and um, steroids at the same time. I had five days straight of seizures, so I had not had a seizure at the library since I was a teenager, but I had one in the staff room, was fine, but then they freaked out and called in more Oc health and safety meetings, and my doctor finally said, stress makes the disease worse, just quit. So employment for people with disabilities is the next wave, the next social wave that has to occur, and one way to know that this is a major problem is that not many people are aware of it. Over 50% of people in Australia with a disability live in poverty. People who could, as you say, do most jobs, there are, uh, it's a major problem. But the good thing is uh, corporations are becoming more aware of people with disabilities as being like a mother load of employees because... Well, let me ask you, if you got a job tomorrow, would you turn up on time? Yes. I'm, I'm early to everything because I can't drive. So public transport, you can be early or you can be late. And what would your attitude day-to-day be? Would it be A, sunny, B, positive, or C, enthusiastic? I'll say positive. Eyes don't like sunny, so... <laughs> yeah, sunny people. Well, I mean, you're wearing sunny, so you don't need it to be provided to you. And in terms of finishing your work day... Would you leave early, on time, or stay until the job's done? Stay until the job's done to prove that I can do everything. Sometimes having a disability just gives us that little bit more sand in our oyster. But yeah, I just want a career. <laughs> That's pretty much it. Yeah. Or a cool dog one day. <laughs> and careers can be challenging for all of us, so I've brought Graham Ennis into the studio to get some information on what Jess went through could have been better managed. Hopefully this will help you, dear listener, if you find yourself in a similar situation. Hello, Graham Innes. Tim, it's great to be talking with you. Oh, man, always good to see you. Um, It's easier if you just introduce yourself, please. Well, I'm Graham Innes. I'm the former Disability Discrimination Commissioner with the Human Rights Commission, and uh, I work now as a company director, but I'm a pretty committed advocate in the disability field. So, Graham, you heard what Jess went through. What could her employer have done to better handle this situation? Well, you know, employers need to think about the um, solution rather than being part of the problem. So what happens to people with disabilities in Australian society is that we're limited because people make 
negative and limiting assumptions about us, about all the things that we won't be able to do, about all the problems that will occur. And sure, if you wanted to take that sort of problem-based scenario, then you could find problems that will occur with most employees. But we generally don't do that. We generally work to make the workplace safe for everyone, and that's your employment obligation. And you don't do that by removing an employee from the workplace. You do that by changing the workplace. What about Jess? Is there anything that she could have done? Uh, well, I guess uh, you know she could have lodged a discrimination complaint, but that's probably the only option that was left up to her if her employment circumstances had been restricted to that extent. But you know sometimes that that can be a difficult process, and really it's unlikely to get you back into that job. Really, that the the best thing for Jess to do probably is to look to find a, a career um, with another employer because that that employment relationship is probably broken. Now, that that sounds pretty disappointing and pretty unfair, and I agree that it is, but um, that's the the sort of the practical approach, I suppose, to the situation. So, Graham, what are the resources that businesses and employers can access, especially when things go bad? Is Is there anyone who they can turn to for help and advice? Well, like most business operations, Tim, it's best to access the resources before things go bad. Um, because once things have gone bad, you've got to, you've got to then pull it back and fix it up. Um, so the, the really good employers uh, go to organisations like AND, Australia's Network on Disabilities, and they've got, they're a national organisation, which is the organisation of employers who are committed to employ people with disabilities. And so they've, rather than focusing on problems, they've found a lot of the solutions. And they've discovered, uh, you know, the stats that I often quote, that people with disabilities stay in jobs longer than um, other people. Uh, We make uh, fewer workers' compensation claims and we take less sick leave. And uh, studies have shown that people with disabilities are more competent problem solvers. And that's not surprising because, you know, we're solving problems every day of our lives uh, just to do with our own lives. So uh, it's not a surprise that we would be better at it than the average person. So we're really pretty damn good employees. Tell me about some situations um, or some of the weirder questions that you've encountered uh, as you've been working with people with disabilities in the employment sphere. Well, I suppose some of the weirder questions that I encountered personally when I was applying for jobs were, well, uh, I had one lawyer who said that he couldn't understand how I'd be able to get to the various courthouses that I'd need to attend. And I sort of explained that, you know, I'd been getting around Sydney, Australia and the world pretty effectively for all of my life. I was also asked about what I would use to communicate, to access materials, uh, which I always thought was a weird question because I'd been accessing them successfully for the four and a half years that I'd been studying. So people just make assumptions because they don't understand how a person operates differently. It really is all about difference, uh, Tim. If you're not operating in the same way as, as an employer, many of them just aren't prepared to accept that you're going to be able to do the job uh, just as well. You'll just do it in a different way. I think people with disabilities, it's the sad reality and it's it's unfair, but we do have to work harder to get jobs and it will take us longer to get jobs. And I think that one of the things that people can choose to do is start in at a lower level than their friends or colleagues without disabilities. Now, a lot of people might say, well, why should you have to do that? You shouldn't. 
But the bottom line is, if you want to get a job, that's sometimes one of the things that you that you have to do. So, Graham, tell me about your vision impairment. Uh, well, I'm totally blind, so I don't see at all. And how do you get around the place? Um, uh, well, I travel around with a white cane or a guide dog, the same way as the other 300,000 people who are blind or vision impaired in Australia. And I have uh, speech and braille. I read in uh, in spoken word or in braille rather than in print. So I communicate. Um, I've been on planes where you've come on with your dog and they sit more still than I do. They're quite extraordinary animals. Um, well, Graeme, thanks so much for coming in, for explaining some things about uh, Jess's situation, but also telling us who you are. Um, it's always a great pleasure to see you. It's always great to chat with you, Tim. Uh, for more information on the NDIS, listen to our bonus episode on employment. And here's Jess again with one last tip on dealing with the situation in the workplace. I worked on a kid's floor of a library, so I went into work with an eye patch on and every kid that was, Mom, look at her face. I just told them all I was a, a pirate. And now I just tell people, don't run with scissors. But um, the kids are like, did that really happen? Oh, yeah. That was Jess Maloney, who, as I said, along with her brother Sean, is responsible for the rockin' guitars in our theme song and drums by Matt Malardi, who's a young man beating the drums and beating Asperger's syndrome every day. Want more made possible? Well, all five episodes are available right now on your favourite podcast app. So please rate, review, subscribe and share these incredible voices. Thanks to producers Sarah Marshman and Martin Peralta. I'm Tim Ferguson, unless somebody stops me. Made Possible is an eardrum production for Uniting, delivering the NDIS in your community. For more information about the NDIS, visit ndis.gov.au or give those lovely people a call on 1800 800 110.